When Jesus goes to the cross, what are we supposed to do as his disciples? What does Jesus call us to do? What does discipleship demand of us here? After sharing the Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus went with them to a garden to pray. The Gospels tell us that there Jesus was betrayed by one of his disciples, one of the twelve, Judas, who led the police and a crowd with their torches and swords and clubs to arrest Jesus. We'll hear more from Judas later this season on Maundy Thursday, so I'll refrain from saying more about him at this point, except to say that, presumably, betraying Jesus is probably not what we're supposed to do in this instance. We do get a polar opposite from Judas in that unnamed disciple who, instead of betraying Jesus to the police, chooses to fight them. All four of the Gospels tell us that when a mob lays hands on Jesus, a certain disciple draws his sword and strikes the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. The Gospel of John tells us that this disciple was none other than Simon Peter, the disciple often known for talking first and asking questions later, and the one who got down out of the boat and walked with Jesus on the water. Peter thinks that this is what it means to be a disciple, to draw the sword and to try to keep Jesus from going to the cross. It's a classic picture of what many people in Jesus' day thought they were supposed to do when the Messiah showed up. Build God's kingdom on earth the same way that other earthly kingdoms are built, using swords. When Jesus is on his way to the cross, is this what disciples are supposed to do? The four Gospels give different accounts of how Jesus responds, but they are all in agreement that Jesus is decidedly opposed to using the sword here. According to the Gospel of Mark, Jesus goes right to saying the same thing we heard at the end of the scene in our reading from Matthew. Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not arrest me. He doesn't directly address the disciple who drew the sword, but he does address the absurdity of swords being involved at all in this situation. This whole coming at night with a mob to apprehend Jesus is the completely wrong reaction to who he is. Like, have you not been paying attention to what he's about? He's taught, turn the other cheek, love your enemies. And his ministry hasn't been about secret conspiracies under the cover of darkness. He's been teaching in broad daylight. It's not just that this mob with swords is laughably overkill, like using a shotgun to kill a stink bug or a spider. It's that coming with a mob to kill Jesus is trying to kill something that there's just no reason to kill. Some of us may feel that way about spiders and stink bugs, by the way. 
I'm reminded of a conversation from Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. It's the scene from which the book gets its title. The little girl scout is reflecting about her father Atticus, and she says, when he gave us our air rifles, Atticus wouldn't teach us to shoot. Uncle Jack instructed us in the rudiments thereof. He said Atticus wasn't interested in guns. Atticus said to Jim one day, I'd rather you shot at tin cans in the backyard, but I know you'll go after birds. Shoot all the blue jays you want, if you can hit them. But remember, it's a sin to kill a mockingbird. That was the only time I ever heard Atticus say it was a sin to do something. And I asked Miss Maudie about it. Your father's right, she said. Mockingbirds don't do one thing but make music for us to enjoy. They don't eat up people's gardens, don't nest in corn cribs. They don't do one thing but sing their hearts out for us. That's why it's a sin to kill a mockingbird. I don't know for sure how Jesus would feel about shooting blue jays. I have a hunch. I don't know for sure. But I think it's safe to say that he'd be in complete agreement with Atticus about mockingbirds. His life and ministry has been about honoring and restoring the innocent beauty in all things, walking gently on the earth. He teaches us as his disciples how to love the goodness that flows through every creature down from our Heavenly Father above. He teaches us how to nurture life in this world, not how to bring destruction. He, he's about healing. According to Luke, when that disciple draws the sword and strikes the slave of the high priest cutting off his ear, Jesus stops the whole thing in order to heal that guy, to heal the wound. He brings healing to a place of violence and brokenness, which is what he's been doing in his whole ministry, making people whole. Why would you come at somebody like that with a sword? It's like trying to kill a mockingbird. And why would you think that somebody like that would want you to fight for him with a sword? As we heard in our reading from Matthew, Jesus directly calls out the sword as problematic here. Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. The sword creates a destructive circle, he says. Violence breeds more violence. Not to mention, Jesus asks, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Don't you think that Jesus knows what he's doing? That if this was his way, he could handle it. The issue that night was not that Jesus didn't have enough swords. It's that his kingdom was not about swords. As we heard from Jesus in what he said to Pilate last week, if my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over. So, when Peter tries to do exactly this, tries to fight to keep Jesus from being handed over, Jesus says to him, put your sword back in its sheath. When the crowd came with their torches and swords and clubs, Jesus would not call his disciples to fight for him. 
he gave himself willingly for them. According to John, when Jesus sees the soldiers and the police coming, he steps forward and clearly identifies himself in order to ensure that no harm would come to his disciples, that he wouldn't lose a single one. Whom are you looking for? Jesus asks. Jesus of Nazareth, they say. I am he. So it's, if it's me you're looking for, let these men go free. We hear a lot about being saved in our area. Have you been saved? When were you saved? As good Presbyterians, I hope you know how we answer that question. Jesus saved us ages ago when he gave his life for us. When Jesus gave himself without fighting to those angry men who came for him, he saved his disciples. Peter drew his sword against a vicious mob, complete with a detachment of soldiers and police. He doesn't stand a chance. It would seem Peter's trying to make good on his promise to Jesus that he'd rather be imprisoned or die than deny or disown him because this act is more than enough to get Peter killed. This makes him a zealot. This makes him a rebel. It's more than the authorities need to turn their attention to him. And I would guess that if Jesus had not stopped the fighting, Peter either, either would have been killed right there on the spot or he would have been arrested and crucified alongside Jesus. It's possible that even the other disciples standing there, whether or not they chose to fight, would have shared the same fate because they were there, conspirators. But Jesus steps forward. He places his body in the way of those torches, swords, and clubs. And he says, if you're looking for me, let these men go. Jesus didn't choose the sword to save his own life. Yes, he knew that the sword would not bring an end to the sword. Live by the sword, die for the sword. But more to the point, Jesus didn't choose the sword because he wasn't trying to save his own life. He was trying to save theirs the lives of his disciples. In the garden that night, he did not demand that his disciples give their lives for him. He didn't ask them to serve him as soldiers of the Christ. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to set others free. Jesus saved his disciples from the shadow of death that night, from being killed and from the darkness of killing. He goes to the cross for them. He goes to the cross to keep them from going there, that they might go free.
Kathy, it was interesting that you picked for the theme song for me this morning, the Imperial March of Darth Vader. Because um, I've been introducing Star Wars to Scarlet. <laughs> it's never too young to get started, right? She actually requests the Darth Vader song in the car. The other day, completely out of the blue, she said to me, talk about run, Luke, run. Can't you see the pride? <laughs> She's talking about the scene where, as we all know, Luke, Han, Chewie, and Leia are trying to escape from the Death Star. But Obi-Wan Kenobi is locked in duel with Darth Vader. And when Obi-Wan sees the situation, when he recognizes that there's no way for his companions to escape if they try to stay and save him, he smiles, as only Alec Guinness can. And he centers himself, and he lets Darth Vader strike him down. And then he becomes one with the Force, right? Luke tries to stay and fight, but then he hears the voice through the force of Obi-Wan saying, run, Luke, run. And then they escape on the Millennium Falcon. Forgive me if this is a spoiler. The film came out in 1977. Um, <laughs> the point is, Obi-Wan gave his life so that his friends could go free. Now, this is a taste of my writing process with a toddler running around the house talking about Star Wars. I'm not complaining, and I'm not apologizing. I just want you to understand why you heard about Star Wars this morning. So what's a disciple to do when their teacher goes to the cross? Not quietly, not without action, but without fighting. According to the Gospels, the disciples of Jesus deserted him, and they fled. Now, if he gave himself to set others free, I'm, is there anything wrong with this? Something wrong with running away? Jesus gave himself for his disciples, and I don't, I don't think he wanted anyone else on trial with him that night. I don't think he wanted anyone else hanging on a cross beside him. But I don't think he wanted to be deserted. He wanted them safe, but would he be truly human if he had wanted to walk that lonesome valley alone. There were people who didn't desert Jesus that night, but who went with him all the way to the cross. We'll hear from some of them in the next few weeks. Mary, his mother. Mary Magdalene, the disciple whom he loved. Other disciples who followed him all the way from Galilee. The choices that night for a disciple were not limited to either draw the sword and fight for Jesus or abandon him and run away. There was a middle path, even if it was hard to find in the dark. There was the path of staying by his side, of being faithful to him without trying to save him, of walking with him, of following him. Peter tries. To his credit, he tries to follow, but at a distance. And we know what comes next. Jesus told Peter, Jesus told him what was going to come next, but the events in the garden seem to have pushed that far from Peter's memory. He did not desert Jesus. He didn't flee. But when he got to that fire, 
kindled in the middle of that courtyard, surrounded by guards and servants, Peter the rock, he falters. He denies Jesus. He denies not only that he's a follower, not only that he was with him, but that he even knows him, that he even knows what's going on. How can this disciple, who only moments ago was ready to fight for Jesus in the garden with the sword, now by firelight deny him? Peter doesn't strike me as a man who's afraid to die. When he drew his sword in the garden, he proved he wasn't afraid of being found out as a disciple and facing the consequences. I don't think he's afraid to die for Jesus. But I think he doesn't know how to live for him anymore. There's this great exchange in the Broadway musical Hamilton. Did it take me three years to get to Hamilton? <laughs> it's a conversation between George Washington and the title character, a young Alexander Hamilton. During the Revolutionary War, Hamilton is Washington's aide-de-camp, his secretary, but he wants to command soldiers in the field. He's got this whole fascination with dying on the battlefield in glory. And Washington says to him, I'm not singing this morning, <clears throat> it's all right you want to fight. You've got a hunger. I was like you when I was younger, head full of fantasies of dying like a martyr. Yes, Hamilton says. Dying is easy, young man. Living is harder. Peter thought he knew what was required of him as a disciple when he had a sword in his hands. He knew how to die for Jesus. But living is harder. And now that his sword is taken away, he doesn't know what being a disciple means anymore. Peter's world is falling apart. He tried to fight for his Messiah, but then Jesus told him to stop. And Jesus told him he had it all wrong. Dying is easy and living is harder because living means, among other things, dealing with disappointment and trying to pick up the pieces when life doesn't go the way we expect. Jesus told Peter he had it all wrong. So sitting there in the firelight, this means one of two things for Peter. Either Jesus failed, or he's not the Messiah Jesus wanted him, Peter wanted him to be. These aren't the droids you're looking for. Which one of those is worse? Which is the harder pill to swallow? The idea that Jesus failed at what we wanted of him? Or that he was never going to be what we wanted him to be in the first place? This is what Peter's processing. He doesn't know how to follow this Jesus who won't let him fight. God forbid it, Lord, Peter even once said to Jesus. This must never happen to you. And now that it has, Peter's in a crisis of faith. When he denies knowing Jesus, I think he has no idea what's going on. Because this Jesus the guards and servants are asking him about is not the Jesus he knew and not the one he wanted to follow. This is part of what's demanded of us as disciples in order to follow Jesus to the cross. 
We have to let go of the visions of what we wanted him to be and let him teach us who he is. We have to let the Messiah we were hoping for die so that we can see the Messiah that Jesus actually is and then learn how to live for him. Peter's world is falling apart because the box he tried to put Jesus in isn't holding together anymore. He thought he had Jesus figured out, and it's honestly pretty nice when we feel like we finally got him figured out. He had Jesus in a box that he could defend and fight for, but then Jesus broke it open. In truth, Jesus set Peter free when he broke that box. And Jesus sets us free when he breaks out of the boxes we build for him. But in the moment the box breaks, it doesn't feel like freedom, does it? It feels like losing everything. It feels like losing ourselves. But this is the way of the cross. If any want to become my followers, Jesus says, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. But Jesus doesn't want his disciples hanging on crosses next to him. He gave his life to set them free. But in following Jesus to the cross, we are called to die to all our attempts to make Jesus in our own image, to make him out to be the Messiah we want him to be, to try to build a box for him that we can fight for and defend. And it's in letting all that go that we can let him save us. Friends, hear the good news. When we are in the crisis of faith, when we don't know what's demanded of us as disciples and we deny knowing Jesus because honestly we have no idea what's going on anymore. Jesus doesn't take his eyes off us. When Peter denies knowing Jesus, at that moment the Lord turned and looked at him. He gave himself to set Peter free, and now that he has broken free of the box Peter tried to build for him, now Peter can see him for who he really is, the one who turns and looks at him, the one who is faithful to the end, even when Peter doesn't know how to follow. When Jesus goes to the cross, what are we supposed to do as disciples? We're called to let him go and let him teach us, trusting he will never let us go. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.